thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Two things fill the mind with ever-increasing admiration and awe. Starry heavens above me and the moral law within me. Immanuel Kant's noble observation seems to have come unstuck. Our moral law, to put it mildly, is skewed. We may look at the stars with awe, but we also think of space as a potential military asset, and we're filling it with junk. We're talking about the mysteries and wonders of space this week, but more particularly, how we misuse it. Here's Rebecca Charbonneau speaking on the Naked Scientist podcast, Why Go to the Moon? And of course, with intercontinental ballistic missiles, you know, ones that can deploy weapons uh, on other continents, there needs to be orbital capability, right, or the ability to go into space. It was partially because of weapons development, and that was what really pushed the United States to start getting into space was Sputnik when the United States realized that the Soviets were able to put Uh, machinery in orbit, it wasn't so much of, oh, we're jealous that you can go into space. It was this real sense of alarm that they are technologically ahead of us in regards to mastering these uh, weapon techniques. So that's largely uh, how the space became uh, the territory in which the early part of the Cold War was fought. Joining me to discuss space is Jerry Gilmore, Professor of Experimental Philosophy in the Institute of Astronomy at the University of Cambridge, Jerry discovered the Sagittarius dwarf spheroidal galaxy. Now, I have no idea what that means. Jerry, what's that? It's a, uh, a galaxy that's inside our own galaxy, the Milky Way. We discovered it in the 1990s, accidentally. At, and at the time, it was very contentious as to whether or not smaller galaxies get continually gobbled up by big galaxies. And so big galaxies grow by cannibalism, or whether or not galaxies basically were assembled very early in the age of the universe. But we discovered this thing. It's only about twice as far from the centre of the Milky Way as is our sun. But it's out the other side, so it's behind the centre of the Milky Way. So it's very hard to see. But it turns out that it is actually deep inside our own Milky Way galaxy, so much so that it has been torn apart completely by the tides uh, and is a shredded, dying remnant of the galaxy that fell in. So it's the closest other galaxy in the universe to us. And it's uh, proof positive that galaxies grow today still, by cannibalising their neighbours. Well, moving from cannibals, we have Dr. Ben Wilkinson. Something of a Naked Reflections regular, Ben is, for a few more days only, Director of Research at the Policy Institute of King's College London, but moving to RAND Europe. 
Ben is an expert in conflict and security. Jerry, do you buy that rather dispiriting account of how modern space exploration started? Yes, actually. The concept of going to space has been around for, well, since Newton, really, in, in a serious scientific way. But people started trying to build rockets and planning out how to do it from the late 1800s. But the whole thing got serious only uh, in the 1930s and 1940s with the German V-Rocket program. And the people who developed that, the most famous in the West is Werner von Braun, of course. The people who developed those murder weapons uh, were taken off to Russia and to the US and put on the job of putting rockets into space. The motivation was equally military and political. You got into space, you had a military advantage because you were up there, you could see what other people were doing. That was the initial ambition, just to be spy satellites. But then as people got better and better technology, they realised you put weapons up there as well. So there's plenty of those up there. So, yes, sadly, uh, that is the original case. The scientific exploitation was always something of a luxury that came a bit later. And the good for mankind, like Earth observation and plotting famine and uh, floods and all those things, that was definitely a byproduct of the military imaging. Does that alarm you, Ben? I know you're an expert in sort of conflict and defence, but the militarisation of space, that seems pretty frightening to me. Yeah, I think in the grand scheme of things that militaries get up to, I think the militarization of space is there. Probably the even more worrying bit is the weaponization of elements of space rather than the, the militarization, having military equipment largely around intelligence and so on is perhaps slightly less concerning than the active use of bits of space with weapons. I mean, I think this is what militaries do, isn't it? They find new frontiers and they work out how to deploy them to a nation state or, or many nation states advantage over rivals. So I mean, it's kind of run of the mill, but also worrying at the same time. And I guess, you know, the, the question really on a kind of moral front is where you avoid using space or you, or you use it for good ends and how you try and stop other people using it mischievously or unfairly or at the um, detriment to others. And I guess that's the kind of policy or doctrine question at the heart of space from a, a conflict point of view is how to avoid others using it malignly, I think is the right phrase. Yeah, I would agree with that uh, quite strongly, actually. The more, even more recent example, of course, is artificial intelligence-controlled drones that go off and spot their targets all by themselves and tell us software, have a moral conscience. But um, uh, certainly there is a, a lot of militarization in space and there are no rules. I mean, it's a battlefield frontier. There's been a lot of activity up there. You know, the Chinese deliberately has attacked one of their own satellites to show it could be done. And the Americans have got giant lasers and things that are designed to shoot down intercontinental ballistic missiles as they wander past. And there's an awful lot of this stuff up there. I mean, I'm not sure what the exact numbers, but close to half of all rocket launchers are military. So, Jerry, you work with both the scientists and you've sat in meetings with the military as well. I mean, can you envisage some kind of protocol developing? I doubt it, actually, to be honest. Well, Ben's an expert on this, but generally the protocols limiting outrageous behavior and conflicts follow the actual outrageous behavior rather than come in advance of it. So until someone does that, something absolutely disgusting. You know, in the early days, they let off nuclear bombs up there just to see what happened. The last fully autonomous British rocket and space science satellite that was launched lasted for about half a day because the Americans tested a, a nuclear bomb in space without telling anyone they're going to do it just straight after this thing was launched and killed it. And, and the military are autonomous. They're not going to tell you, you know, that they're going to do it and they're not going to stop doing it if they think they've got an advantage. So it's something we just have to live with in, in some way. 
I think that's right. Coming up with treaties and things that bind people to behave in better ways tends to follow moral outrage. And I encourage uh, listeners to listen to a previous one of these uh, podcasts where we did talk about autonomous weapons and um, sort of killer robots. And maybe you disagree with me on this, Joe, but I, th- I think one of the things about automation in, in military affairs, killer robots, loitering munitions, self-guided drones and all of this stuff is that A, they're kind of being used, B, they're being used reasonably visibly, and C, there is already moral outrage. In in the space context, I don't know if the same moral outrage exists in the wider population. I don't know how much people think about kind of missiles, about the use of space in a military context. I don't know how much it gets into the sort of popular consciousness and then would drive policy change. Um, I leave it as an open question, but I suspect it's less than around killer robots that are being used in Nagorno-Karabakh at the moment, for instance. I think you're right, Debbie, and actually, I mean, there are um, cases of self-limiting behaviour already in messing up space. So both the Russians, the Chinese, and probably the Americans, without telling us, have actually deliberately attacked defunct satellites and destroyed them just so to prove that they can. And this is partly a warning to other people that should you try to preempt uh, a war in space, we can take you out. And partly it's just testing their own technologies. So people have these technologies. But after the particularly gross one of the Chinese one, where they smashed up a big spacecraft and there was a huge amount of debris came out from that. There was such a a worldwide reaction from the spacecraft community that the countries, they never admitted to it, but they've stopped doing it. And so they realised that the damage to their own capabilities and, and the commercial, particularly communication systems that they rely upon was potentially so great they could end up destroying themselves. And so that's become a self-limiting case, uh, one of those rare ones. What happened to the Star Wars program? I remember being a student in America at the time, and uh, the president then, Ronald Reagan, made a big thing about this program protecting the United States and the free world. Um, But the initiative was scrapped, wasn't it, in the early 90s? Was that anything to do with failure or worry? What what happened there? Reagan announced that as uh, we're going to put an end to deterrence and therefore there'll be no need for any weapons. But that's a fairly political way of phrasing what they were trying to do. Because if you have that capability only on one side, then it's the opposite of deterrence. So in fact, it started another arms race. At the time, even... A lot of the scientific community said, this is actually physically impossible. We'll never make this thing work. And I was in a panel discussion on space debris, uh, dangers to spacecraft and so on from overcrowding, maybe eight, ten years ago now, with some very senior people. One of them was the guy who was at the time the head of the U.S. Air Force Space Division. And there were a couple of people there were talking about how they had these new satellite concepts for going cleaning up all the old dead satellites and like Roman gladiators, they'd wrap them up in a net and drag them down. And that's the technology that's actually started working this year. But this bloke, this general sitting next to me, said in a sort of thick southern US accent, he said, if anyone ever approaches closely one of our military satellites, even one that is long defunct, we will consider it an aggressive act of war. So I thought, well, that's a nice friendly way to start the conversation. If you have a look at defence expenditure in the West in comparison to both Russia and China, you know, there is clearly an arms race uh, well underway at the moment, particularly in fields like cyber and automation and nanotech and all of these things. And I guess my question for you is whether whether you see space as as an important part in that current arms race or whether you see it as a separate arms race or whether you don't think there's an arms race in space at all or possibly a different answer. (laughs) No, it's a a fascinating subject, isn't it? You see that... um... Something that people don't like to admit too much is that essentially all modern military systems, other than guns that fire bits of metal at other people, 
organized and controlled uh, from space. So it's the communication systems are all in orbit and the observation systems are all in orbit. There's the odd aeroplane flying around that supplements it, but basically ground-based military systems are controlled from in orbit. I mean, it's why the UK is having to spend a very, very large amount of money to build a new secure communication system because we've cleverly left the, the European one. So we need our own because the UK military has to be able to talk to itself without anybody eavesdropping. All of this happens in space, and that's why the danger of uh, being able to kill spacecraft in space is such a, a global threat for a runaway war because you could blind the enemy, and if the enemy don't know you're there, they do tend to pull the trigger just in case. One of the um, things I've heard military officials talk about on this front, it's not a weapon at all, but the thing that they seem to be particularly concerned about is the the Chinese development of their own GPS system. It's one of the critical things to worry about because it's a way of, as you say, keeping your enemy blind. Yeah, GPS systems control not only our domestic appliances and our sat-nav and our phones, but they also control military systems as well. So if you want to fly a, a missile, a guided missile, it has to know where it is. And that means it needs to talk to a high-precision, secure GPS. So once an organisation or country has that capability, then it's very, very hard to stop them scaling up. The Chinese have passed that technological threshold and there's no reason to believe that they're going to continue to at least get to the current Western level quite soon because they're, they're developing very fast. As part of the background, I think the Huawei 5G issue, you know, as soon as these technologies become public domain, then they are military exploitable. This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. My guests are Jerry Gilmore and Ben Wilkinson, and we're talking about space. We've touched on the militarization of space, but if that was not enough, we're now filling space with junk. Here's Hugh Lewis speaking on the Naked Scientist podcast, a crash course in space junk. Well, I think the, the space is big mantra was used uh, and has been used since the beginning of the space age uh, and it's certainly true you know the, the volume uh, that space occupies is is enormous but what we're doing is we're sending satellites into into quite specific orbits and into orbits that are relatively close to the earth uh, and if we keep doing that as we've been doing for the last 50 60 years then all that junk accumulates relatively close to the earth in these quite congested orbits you may have watched the film Gravity, and that reminds us of the problems of space junk. Clearly, it's an obvious danger. What are we going to do with all this space junk? Yes, there is a, a lot of space junk, and the, the amount is growing very, very rapidly. People may have noticed and even seen by eye the um, spectacular numbers of what are called constellation spacecraft being launched over the last couple of years. So there are Thousands of spacecraft a year being put up into these low orbits to the invisible. By the end of the decade, there'll be 100,000 of these little satellites up there. And so that not only completely polluting the sky for astronomers and just the ordinary public, you'll no longer be able to go out and see what you used to see because the sky will be all streaky. But also it makes it dangerous. Now, it's also important to realise that space is big. And so there are different problems depending on how far away from the planet you are. At present, very low orbits where these small satellites are, things don't last very long. They're slowed down by the residual atmosphere of the Earth, and then they fall down and burn up, and they just become a little meteor. But you don't have to go very much higher than that. Uh, orbits, which are still desirable because they're close to the Earth, and so relatively low-power systems can send you down your Wi-Fi. Relatively high-resolution images can say whether there's a traffic jam on some motorway or other in real time, and they're, they're at serious risk. 
And then you go up much higher to the geostationary, they're called. These are the ones that always appear to be parked over the same part of the earth. They're going around the same speed. And this is very valuable real estate. In fact, it's licensed out by agreement because this is where the big TV and communications and GPS and things like that they live. And so they're, they're big, expensive spacecraft, typically the size of a bus, and they last for 20 years. And there is now an agreement that once these things come to the end of their lives, they will be pushed a bit further up again in parks. And because space goes up a few bit of distance, it's putting off the problem for 100,000 years so someone else can worry about it. So it's, it's the lower levels where all the debris is mucking around, where it gets noticed because that's where astronauts tend to hang around. It may be the theologian in me, but, you know, my vision of uh, the mystery of the stars and the beauty, I tend to think there's a touch of divine. I'm afraid there's not much divine in this conversation. Help me here, Ben. I mean, when, you know, when you look up there, isn't there something profound or is it all about weapons and military and defense as far as you're concerned? Of course, there is something profound. You could say the same about the depths of the ocean or the poles of the earth. And yet defence looks to these areas and sees them as either potential threats or areas that it can control for a nation state's kind of advantage. And I guess, you know, the the profundity also meets up with the practicality of of power, ultimately. And that's what nation states and policymakers and strategists sit there and worry about. So uh, I, I think they sadly put the profundity to the back of their minds and seek advantage and conquest, which is um, perhaps slightly dismal. Unfortunately, that is the, the way that nation states go. You know, they look towards power as their, as their means, don't they? Well, let me push back a little bit, Ben, because I remember our conversations with Margaret Macmillan, and you talked about, at that time, the lessons that had been learned from the First World War, the lessons learned from the Second World War. And of course, you know, we can't afford a third, right? So what hope is there unless we do think about the big questions? And even you, a defence specialist, and, and you, Jerry, an astronomer looking up at the stars, give the listeners some hope that actually space or exploration in the future won't just be driven by the military. These are very profound points you're raising there, Ed. But I think probably a good place to start is your introductory uh, quotation from Kent. And so after spending my whole life as an astronomer and by now several years of freezing on mountaintops, actually using telescopes and uh, seeing the sky from these gorgeous dark sites and so on, it's still true that I walk out even in Cambridge where you can see very little and you look up and you go, wow, there is genuinely awe. And that doesn't go away. I'm from New Zealand. I did my PhD in New Zealand and I think, I think it was actually the first ever PhD in astronomy in New Zealand. And then I came over to, um, to Scotland, I stayed there for not very long, four or five years, and then moved down to Cambridge, and where I still am, professor of experimental philosophy, but I'm, uh, I'm, I'm an astronomer. I do a lot of stuff uh, on using spacecraft. I, I lead a, the largest science space mission currently in operation, which is called happily called Gaia, basically studying the Milky Way and dark matter and the origins of things the origins of the stuff we're made of. So many people have that sense of awe that I think it will help to protect the system. Now, I'm told it is a major um, form of tourism, particularly among Chinese people who now live in light-polluted cities where they can't see the sky at all. 
for grandparents to take their children somewhere dark so that they can see the sky as it was when they were young. And it's a big cultural legacy to hand over the sky. And I certainly know that among the Maori people in New Zealand, this reverence for the sky is part of their culture. Although it's deeply embedded in some cultures, it's felt by everybody who's ever actually seen the sky properly. And I think this is working to save the sky, actually. So, for example, right now with these big constellations of spacecraft that are going up by their thousands, there's a huge backlash globally against the companies that are doing this. And so the companies are realising it's actually not in their PR interest just to carry on and just treat space as as a, a space where they can throw their waste plastic. And so they are interacting with the science community trying to make the spacecraft darker and trying to make them less obvious and controlling them in ways that are compromising. So they're purely ruthless commercial people racing to a commercial advantage, included in that in a big way is the UK government, actually, which owns one of these companies. But nonetheless, they're compromising because people are saying, hey, this isn't your space, this is our space. you, You don't have the right to do what we have done foolishly in the oceans with the plastic. Just look after it. So there is that hope. I completely agree, Jay. I mean, I think I think the other point, so there is profundity and awe in the skies. And I think that the sort of related point to pick up on that first quote from Kant is this element of moral law. I think there is something reasonably profound and awestruck in, in that as well, in that despite the fact that nation states look for power, there is an inbuilt handbrake that is regularly and often um, pulled. And we have seen it slightly loose of late with arms races and so on. But there is a desire in nation states to avoid going to war as much as there is to go to war in the pursuit of power. Robert Oppenheimer famously found drifting into his thoughts as he watched history's first nuclear explosion in the New Mexico desert on the 16th of July, 1945, And he said, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. And I guess the question is, and this really is an open one, is that the new world in which we live with a kind of changing in in the political system from a sort of unipolar world to a multipolar world, is that handbrake still there? And to what degree does the Cold War and the lessons of the Cold War come true again? And I don't I don't have an answer. I'm slightly reassured by the recent ish meeting between President Biden and President Putin that there are, there are at least some agreements to avoid nuclear confrontation. Some some of these agreements have been re-signed up to, but it, it does feel to me, although I was six uh, at the end of the last Cold War, it does feel to me that there, there is slow progress, um, but there is progress none, nonetheless. And I think that is for the politicians and for the theorists promoting that sort of inbuilt moral law uh, to avoid nuclear confrontation or confrontation in space or confrontation on cyber or confrontation with autonomous weapons. That is the bit we should be privileging and looking at and trying to bring to the fore. Um, so there is awe in the skies, but there may also be some awe in humankind as well. There's a, a, almost a theologian's point for you there, Ed. Oh, thank you, Ben. Just for me, that one. Um, we're coming towards the end, and I'd like to ask this question of Jerry, really. Returning to your love of space as as an astronomer, are there aspects that might actually jolt us into behaving more humanely, I can put it like that, in space, whether it's fear of meteors or whether it's dark matter or black holes and so on? Or is that unrealistic? Those are all really exciting topics that really catch the vision uh, of people and particularly young people. And in the same way that huge pressure is being put on governments by ordinary people, particularly young people, saying climate change is not acceptable. 
I think the same thing is happening in space. But uh, in a way that hasn't quite happened yet, you will be aware that very, very large numbers of planets around other stars are being discovered. And we are rapidly developing the technology to study those individual planets and almost, not quite, but almost to find ones that would or should be like Earth. So they'd be an Earth's sort of gravity. They would have an ocean and an atmosphere and they would have a plausible temperature range for life. And within the next 10 years or so, with possibly even sooner with the, the new James Webb Space Telescope that will be launched very soon, and then the giant ground-based telescopes that are coming on stream in a few years, we will be able to actually study these planets and maybe we'll find one that goes uh, green in summer and white in winter or something like that or we will see the chemical traces in the atmosphere of something that looks like it's breathed and then we'll know that we're not alone and I suspect that that is going to have a huge emotional and psychological impact on people probably just as much as been mentioned the depths of the ocean you look in the depths of the ocean and you find a, a shark wrapped up in a, in a bit of plastic and you get outraged. And then you suddenly think, oh, well, actually, we're not alone. Perhaps we ought to think a little bit more about our context. From your lips, Jerry, to God's ears. Thanks to my guests, Jerry Gilmore and Ben Wilkinson. And thanks to you two for listening. We'd love to hear from you at Naked Reflections. You can find us at the Wolf Institute, send us an email or a Facebook message or a tweet, and check out our voluminous back catalogue of discussions, including Ben Wilkinson and Margaret Macmillan on Conflict, and bioconflict. You can find Naked Reflections podcast at nakedscientist.com slash reflections or wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be back next week with some more guests. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.